Hello and welcome to the Wabi Sabi series podcast. This is where we have unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. Now today I am going to share with you a chapter from a book I wrote last year, Doctors Are Not Gods. This whole book is around the premise of taking responsibility for our own health and well-being, something that I think is pretty pertinent in uh, what's going on in today's climate. So Please enjoy the chapter and next week I'll be back interviewing a person on a topic that some people feel uncomfortable about and they want society to talk more on. So love your feedback as always. Please rate, review, send me your feedback, send me ideas on new uh, interesting people to interview or even topics that you might have in your mind. So contact me through socials or hello at wabisabiseries.com. Enjoy the episode and see you again next week. Medical gaslighting. I think one of the worst things when you are ill and no one can find out what is wrong with you for weeks or months, as was the case for my mum and my illnesses, would be that sheer sense of frustration of not getting any answers. It plays on your mind and starts to affect your daily life. And if you're in significant pain, it's far worse. I know at times a number of these thoughts cross my mind. Is there something wrong with my brain and not my body? Are they right and there's actually nothing wrong with me? For me, looking back, I can see that my being blindsided by the medical fraternity could have been due to a couple of factors. One, I was very young to have the symptoms I did. It was unusual, so I was easily dismissed. Two, due to my age, I was intimidated by the doctor. When I did ask questions or push back a little, I was shut down pretty quickly and my opinions disregarded. And three, I actually just wanted to believe that there was nothing wrong with me. I wanted to believe that my doctor was right, but my intuition was telling me otherwise. Not realising it at the time, it could have also been a case of medical gaslighting. Gaslighting is a term that's commonly used in toxic relationships where a person manipulates their partner into doubting their own perception of reality using manipulative tactics such as dismissal, you're being unreasonable, you're crazy, that never happened. Romantic relationships aren't the only type of relationships we have and it's certainly not outside the realms of possibility for medical professionals to manipulate that doctor-patient relationship, even if unconsciously. Since then, I've read many articles about healthcare providers and implicit biases that cause patients to be mistreated. Some of these relate to gender or race, or even socioeconomic status. Some research states that physicians are more likely to take a woman's pain less seriously than they would a man's. The view and data on why that is, though, is varied. The most common belief is that a woman's pain threshold is naturally higher due to things like it being designed for childbirth, for example. In a study conducted by the University of Pennsylvania, researchers found that women waited 16 minutes longer than men to receive pain medication when they visited an emergency room. They also found that women are more likely to be told their pain is psychosomatic, or influenced by emotional distress. My mum and I are real-life examples of that. Interestingly, 
a Yale cardiology study found that many women hesitated to seek help for a heart attack because they worried about being thought of as hypochondriacs. In a survey of more than 2,400 women with chronic pain, 83% said they felt they had experienced gender discrimination from their healthcare providers. When asked the question, has a doctor ever said the following to you? The most common responses were, 75% said, you'll have to learn to live with your pain. 57% said, I don't know what's wrong with you. 51% said, you look good, so you must be feeling better. And 45% said, the pain is all in your head. It appears I'm not alone. Researching for this book, I stumbled across a wide range of literature raising a more commonly accepted view that the medical fraternity does, in fact, treat women differently than men. It appears that women have rarely been studied in detail by medical science and were not even included in clinical trials until the 1990s. What that means is, while women make up 70% of patients with chronic pain, 80% of all pain medication available today has only been tested on men. Sickness fatigue. I've talked about the somewhat unrealistic workload doctors appear to endure these days, and it made me wonder about how that can negatively affect their on-the-job performance. We're all guilty of being on autopilot at times when we're tired at work or our mind is elsewhere. Perhaps there are times where doctors are simply so overexposed to illness that they skip over or miss small things that might be relevant to that individual patient. The symptoms might be minimal compared to other critical patients they've seen that day or week, but could be critical in recovery. Could there be such a thing as sickness fatigue in medical practitioners, where key warning signs are missed and critical treatment is not recommended? Being a nurse and dealing with sick people all day every day, my stepmum Glennis tells me that when she's away from work, she finds it really hard to feel empathy when people are unwell. Her first husband, who suffered from mental health issues throughout their time together, was continually melodramatic about every small detail of his health, which was exhausting after a day's work. She would find that she'd switch off. She shares with me, Eleven years after I left him, it was a case of the boy who cried wolf. He turned out to have a real issue, and it took some time for the doctors, who he visited very regularly, to take him seriously. He was diagnosed with prostate cancer and sadly died within a year. Fast forward to years later when my dad, Graham, had minor symptoms of shortness of breath and dull chest pain, but was refusing to get checked out, instead just whining to his wife. Glennis recalls, I was agitated with him. He was still smoking even though he knew he shouldn't. I felt that wouldn't be helping his health. I used to tell him, don't whinge about these pains, do something about it if you're worried. But he wouldn't. I often wonder whether I should have insisted that he go to the doctor. Dad died suddenly of a heart attack not long after. Survivor's Anxiety An interesting thing happens to you after you've been seriously ill and recovered. I've spoken to many people who've experienced the same symptoms as me. You have this continuous undercurrent feeling that you're going to get really sick again, even if you have no reason to. 
It's the weirdest thing, especially if you were someone who was relatively healthy for most of your life and not sick that often prior to the serious condition. At times I thought I had become neurotic. I found myself stressing out when I got a common cold or had a slight headache or my bowels were playing up. I was to find that it's actually quite common and is called fear of recurrence. It's one of the greatest challenges for cancer survivors and many find it comes and goes for years. It's a weird dichotomy, as I found it came on after I was really healthy again. I recall being so elated once I received the all-clear statement. The relief your entire being feels when hearing the words, you're cancer-free, or you're classed as being in remission. To get to that point for most takes years, and there are many milestones, or what I always called mini-celebrations, every step of the way. Survive the surgery, tick. Move from monthly checks with the oncologist to bi-monthly, yay. Move from three to four monthly checks, getting there. Four to six months, six to twelve. You think you're invincible. When I was told I only needed to make a yearly appointment from now on to ensure we were being vigilant, I wanted to throw the biggest party. I felt like I'd climbed Mount Everest in how far I'd come. And yet, after a while, small triggers would set off a kind of anxiety. A fear of recurrence affects people differently. And I've learned that there are also a variety of things that can set you off into a cloud of negativity and distress. At times, it can affect your well-being and ability to enjoy life, as you often become afraid to make plans for the future or plan too far ahead. I found a few things would trigger my sense of panic or overreaction. I'd have an almost violent response to the most trivial things and I wouldn't understand why. Things like anniversaries of the date I was diagnosed or my surgery date. It was Melbourne Cup Day so it's hard to forget. I would become depressed in the days leading up to that and often not realise or connect it with those events. In the early years when I drove past the hospital where I had my surgery, I would often feel squeamish and unsettled. Before any of my follow-up appointments, I would get quite anxious and agitated. Those appointments would always make me feel really nervous, but I would never want anyone to accompany me. I felt like that would make an even bigger deal out of what I tried to tell myself were trivial feelings and I had nothing to worry about. Other survivors have shared with me that their biggest fears of reoccurrence happen when other people close to them are sick or diagnosed with cancer or a similar condition to what they had or when hearing media reports about cancer. And the obvious, when the death of a friend or family member occurs, anxiety heightens. I'm here to tell you it's a thing. If you're recovering and have an unhealthy response to being unhealthy, it's okay. It's quite a normal reaction. I was so afraid of grazing my legs or getting a cold in the early years of my recovery, I used to go to extreme lengths to avoid sick people. But slowly, over time, I found it faded, and I started to reframe what had happened to me and tried to focus on the upside. I was now happy and healthy, and I'd been given another or longer chance in this life to do some good, so I'd better make every day count. And if you're supporting anyone that has had a major illness, be aware of these kinds of triggers. Talk to them to see if there are things that make them nervous or upset, or they get anxious about it. 
ask if there is any way you can help support them during these times or occasions. Try creating a weird code word with each other to help understand if they're nervous or unusually upset about something you can't pinpoint. Personally, I used to call these my SIEs, which was short for shitty, insignificant events. By calling out what it was, it would help me to diffuse the power it had over me and my emotions. Didn't completely go away, but I felt I was able to tackle it a little more head-on in this way. 